0: Well this morning we continue our series called The Spirit of the Church, a series which we began together a couple weeks back to once again remind ourselves and rediscover for our church's sake the principles that we uh, place the foundation of this church upon. Uh, we saw that Christ was leading us to start this church with a mission outlined for us here in the book of Acts chapter 2. And as we've been taking a very high level view of this chapter we have been simply drawing out some very general basic principles, seeing how it all began and then therefore mirroring that in our church uh, today. And so we began in Acts chapter 2 in verses 1-4 through four, and we, dis- we showed and demonstrated that to be an effective church we need to be a spirit-led church and we explained the practicality of that uh, what that means, what that looks like and so forth secondly we then went from verses 5 through uh, 13 and we saw that the early church, this infant church there born in Jerusalem was immediately brought in connection or contact with the current culture of that time and so we simply concluded that Number two, we needed to be a church that engages the culture. That we weren't meant to stay on the sidelines and watch the culture go by. That we were meant as a church to engage the culture and have impact upon it. And that engaging of the culture led to an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to evangelize. As what had occurred, the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 disciples that were gathered there in what appears to be uh, one place in an upper room, some believe. And the Spirit came upon them and the sound of the Spirit was that of a rushing wind. Flame of fire was placed on each of the individuals sitting there in the upper room. And as a result they began to speak in other tongues, other languages. And we discovered that those languages were the Uh, Rural dialects of the individuals who were actually gathered there in Jerusalem for the purpose of celebrating the Feast of Pentecost, one of the high feasts of the Jewish faith. When the individuals were heard by the people who had filled the streets to celebrate Passover there in Jerusalem and the individuals there from the other places and these other regions heard the wonderful works of God being spoken in their own dialects, dialects that were select to the regions in which they came from, it was interesting how they reacted. It got their attention. It drew them into to, to consider that something very unique and substantial was happening right before them. And it led them to ask the question, What does this mean? What is really taking place here? What's really happening here? Some mocked and said, well, these individuals, these Galileans are simply drunk. And it's the new wine talking. And we substantiated there last week that uh, in each and every case I've encountered an intoxicated person, never have I heard them speak in a foreign language fluently after becoming intoxicated. It's just never happened, okay? They just never started rattling off Italian, French, or whatever it may be that just didn't occur. They started speaking something, but it sure wasn't another language. Um, And so they were mocked by the crowd that had assembled there and simply dismissing what they had seen, saying that it just must be them filled with wine and new wine. Peter now stands up As he hears the mockery, but also the sincerity of the question being asked, what does this mean? And he now stands in the midst of all and begins to address the individuals asking that question before them. And he gives an explanation for what is occurring before them and why it is important for them to listen to what he is about to say. Number three. After being a spirit-led church, number two, a spirit a church that engaged the culture, number three, we must be an evangelistic church. We must be a church that is about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ with whoever will listen. And I want to make it abundantly clear from the beginning of our time looking at evangelism based on the sermon of Peter here in Acts chapter 2 that we fully believe that it is every Christian's responsibility to look for those opportunities that God may lead them into during the course of any given day or any given week and be prepared to share the gospel on Christ's behalf with someone who does not know Him. Evangelism is not just left to the leadership of the church. It doesn't just stop there. We believe in equipping each and every person to give them the ability to take advantage of that unique opportunity that God has purposely led you into by His Spirit that you may share with the person in front of you the good news of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time you had such a divine opportunity? that appointment that you knew God was setting you before another person to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Has it been a while? Well, according to new statistics, it's been a while for many evangelical Christians. Today, it seems that evangelical Christians are less likely, resistant, and even hesitant to talk about and share their faith with those who do not know the Lord. Their thinking is is that currently in our culture, it is absolutely a taboo subject. We're just not going to go there. Uh, it's divisive. It doesn't create unity. It severs relationships. You just don't talk about this subject of religion or faith. And yet, studies are now telling us that on the opposite end of the equation, individuals in the world are more than willing, if not welcoming... To hear the story of how God is working in your life personally and allowing them to uh, enjoy or join into that experience, meaning uh, allow them to understand what God has done in your life. People are welcoming those conversations. Evangelism on college campuses are now really starting to go through the roof, meaning individuals want to hear this. And they are discovering that some individuals in which they are encountering in that college setting from the United States of America doesn't even know the backstory to the gospel any longer. So to them, it's somewhat new and they're willing to listen. So if you've been inhibited in speaking your mind or talking about the gospel with individuals, I want to try to break that barrier down and say to you, those opportunities are there for you to take advantage of. But many still are shy away from these occurrences, these opportunities. And it's often due to the result that many just don't feel that they know what they should say and how they should present it. And so we have often taken uh, time to teach people how to evangelize, teach people how to share their faith with others, and so forth. In fact, early on in our church's uh, uh, you know, starting point, um, God showed us that we were going to be an evangelistic church. And if many of you remember our come-just-as-you-are crusades. These were big events that we put on. And many could not believe that a church of 30, 40 people at that time could put on such elaborate events, and we did it. And I would bring in a band, and we would have a big concert, and then I would get up there and share a message in the gospel, and you know, at every single one of them, people got saved. In fact, if I may put on the spot, during one of our crusades at Carpentersville Park in Carpentersville an individual was sitting on their porch just a block away, and I was teaching through John 3.16 and then inviting individuals to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was inviting people to come and to receive Christ as their Savior. And this person on their porch a block away heard all of this and felt the Spirit's conviction and needed to get back to church and so on and so forth. So that Sunday they went to church. Her and her son went to church. Unbeknownst that the church that they uh, went to was the church that held that event there in the park and Debbie's been with us ever since. (laughs) God God is so good. It's just amazing. And we had no idea that she was on her porch, you know, Uh, and so forth, but God did. God knew it. And so as we talk about evangelism, we have seen it firsthand in our church work extraordinarily. That's how this church started. It was by people coming together and then taking the gospel back to their friends and family and those people getting saved and so on and so on and so on and so so forth. But knowing that I was given that opportunity to give an evangelistic message, I wanted to do it right. So I went back and I found every evangelistic sermon that I could ever find and I read it because I wanted to learn from the prose and how to do it. Everything that Billy Graham said, I was reading. And the Gospel of Jesus. I even got his toned down, you know. D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Greg Laurie lloyd jones spurgeon and then i realized why don't i go a little bit farther back right to the source with a guy named peter and a guy named paul and what can i learn from their evangelistic sermons in helping me prepare to deliver the gospel accurately authentically and in the same power of the spirit that they enjoyed back at the time that they gave these words and this was one of the sermons that I studied. And the very first thing that I notice about what Peter does here in his explanation, he first gives a defense and then he gives an explanation in the first verses 14 through 21, which we'll look at today, of what has just happened before these people there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And as I was praying and saying, Lord, show me what you'd have me to walk away. This is a unique event. It's never going to happen again. This is Pentecost and so on and so forth. But what can I learn from this text? And the Lord showed me between Peter and Paul's message in Acts 17, they both encapsulated the big idea before getting down to the specific issue. And so the title of my message today is Evangelism, Painting the Big Picture. Often we neglect this portion, but I find it in many of the sermons in the the New Testament where the individual evangelizing gives a big picture of what is actually occurring, what is actually happening, so the listeners then may focus in on the moment and see that it's part of something much larger than themselves. And so as Peter addresses the people, the very first thing that he does is he wants to assure them that they're not drunk, okay? Pretty much need to get over that before people will even listen to you, right? And Peter's argument is very simple. Folks, it's nine o'clock in the morning, we're not drunk, I mean, to be a Jewish person intoxicated at 9 o'clock in the morning, that was absolutely prohibited. You were just a flat-out alcoholic at that point. You were not going to go any farther uh, in anything else if you were drunk at 9 a.m. Peter then assures the people in verse 14 that that is not the case. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose. Since it only is the third hour of the day, which is nine o'clock in the morning. The day started at six AM. And in verse sixteen, now he enters into the explanation. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Let us understand that Peter now is addressing them in his native tongue of Greek. He is explaining what has just happened in this event where tongues of other languages have been spoken. He's now speaking in Greek. And he is now going to explain the uh, incredible event that they had just witnessed there in Jerusalem with the disciples, the 120 apparently speaking in other languages and dialects of those particular regions and places. And now Peter is going to explain to them what has just occurred. But in doing so, he draws them into the big picture. And for the Jewish individual... As we have learned in chapter 2, the people gathered here were all devout Jewish people. They needed to know that what was happening before them was uh, entrenched in the Old Testament. That was imperative for them to know. They wanted to know that what was happening before them was spoken about in the Old Testament and that God was in it. And to assure them of that fact, he then goes back to the uh, book of Joel, which I'm going to encourage you to read when you have a moment. Joel is one of the most fascinating minor prophets of the Old Testament. But he takes this section out, he does add a bit to it, and he applies it to what is happening to them, or in their midst before them, and also at the same time draws them into a big picture which we'll see in just a moment. Let's read it together. Verse 16, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is it. Verse 17, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show my wonders in heaven, in the heavens above, and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon uh, to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the explanation. We are not drunk, but what you have just seen and heard is the fulfillment of what Joel prophesied so many of hundreds of years prior. This then brings the Jewish mind into the realm of the Old Testament. There is a scriptural basis for what has just happened before them that would have drawn the Jewish listener in and grabbed their attention and now solidified the authenticity of the act that has just taken place before them. Assuring them that there was no intoxication before them for it's only 9 a.m., Peter, without any prep on this speech that he is about to give, immediately moved and filled by the Holy Spirit, takes him back into Joel and to explain that this is what the prophet Joel had talked about, that in the last days the Spirit of God will be poured on all flesh. In the Old Testament, we know that when the Spirit of God came upon an individual... God uniquely and individually anointed that one with the Spirit of God. It wasn't something that every individual in the Jewish uh, culture and faith enjoyed. It was God selecting each and every one who would have the Spirit of God from king to prophet, etc., and they would be anointed. Often that anointing would be demonstrated with a, a pouring on or over the head of oil and so forth. And that would show that the Spirit has anointed them for the ministry, the purpose in which God was raising up and calling them to fulfill. But now Peter's saying that no, now it's changed. And all who are believers in Jesus Christ will be given the Holy Spirit. This is new this is an aspect of the new covenant this was an aspect that confirmed the nature and character of Jesus Christ and he said that what you have seen before you and us speaking in these tongues is a manifestation of that the spirit of God has come and he's come upon all of us and he will not be removed David being anointed with the Holy Spirit to allow him to fulfill the role of king in Israel, after sinning with Bathsheba in his repentance in Psalm 51 verse 11, he prayed and asked God, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. As he previously saw King Saul and the Spirit departing him, and God no longer with him. David is now begging that this would not occur to him due to the fact that the sin that he had entered in had now grieved the heart of God. But you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, because we are washed clean permanently through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Spirit now can stay resident within us because our sin has been dealt with in finality once and for all at the cross of Jesus Christ. This allows us the assurance that once we are saved, born again, new creations in Christ and the Spirit dwelling in us, that the Spirit will not be removed from us. Though it is possible for us as believers, if we sin and so forth and continue in certain sin, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit and we are admonished not to do such a thing. There are periods where we can feel dry because we haven't confessed our sin before God and so forth but yet we still have the assurance of being one of his kids and the spirit within us. It's an incredible act of grace. This was something that even Moses was anticipating and looking forward to. In fact, if you have an opportunity, look to Numbers 11, verses 26 through 30. As two individuals in the camp there, I'll just sum up some of it for you. Eliad and Medad... "...saw the Spirit rest on them, and they were among the uh, registered, but they had not yet gone out of the tent. Uh, And they prophesied there in the tent, and a young man ran and told Moses that Iliad and Midiad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant to Moses uh, from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them immediately from doing such things. Verse 29, But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake?" Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord put His Spirit on all of them and Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Moses looked forward to this. He wished more people had the Spirit of God. And so now the Spirit has come upon the the new-founded church of 120 people with a rushing wind, just demonstrating the power of the Spirit, the flame of fire representing the, present of God, the presence of God among them. And now Peter says, this is what Joel spoke about, and it's now happening in your midst. Warren Worsby said this, It was indeed the dawning of a new age, the last days, in which God would bring to completion His plan of salvation for mankind. Jesus had finished the great work of redemption and nothing more had to be done except to share the good news with the world beginning with the nation of Israel the invitation is whomsoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved but in Joel's prophecy the beginning of it verse 17 and 18 started there at Pentecost it indicated that the last days were now being ushered in, and now we are 2,000 years from that point, so that's why I always believe that we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than ever before. As this ushered in this period of time known as the last days, it appears from the text that much of the remainder of the prophecy will be fulfilled at the return of jesus christ if you notice the language of 19 and 20 you see that again these things are displayed for us in the book of revelation and will occur during the seven-year tribulation period and i will show wonders in heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So there's still ye- prophecy yet to be fulfilled in this text. The Jewish term based on the evidence from the Dead Sea scrolled Scroll is presher. P-E-S-H-E-R. It is a uh, initial fulfillment; it is the uh, the beginning of the fulfillment, but the end of it is still yet to come. Others believe that what we have here is what's called the law of double reference; that it is beginning here in uh, at Pen- the day of Pentecost. It is beginning at this time, but ultimately the entire prophecy will be fulfilled in the last days. I hold to an now and not yet position, meaning that it started at Pentecost, the Spirit came down. We have evidence that the church had many who prophesied male and female after the Spirit had arrived. We see the gifts of the Spirit being uh, initiated by the Spirit of God to individuals within the church. I believe that this has begun. We see that every individual who is born again receives the Holy Spirit as this prophesy. Uh, prophecy predicted and explained. So I see all of that, but certainly nineteen and twenty and twenty one will occur at the end. The big picture. This is how it's starting, Peter saying, and by drawing the attention to that prophecy, he's saying, "But this is how it's also going to end." And now he has drawn his listener into the big picture leading them to the last question, which is called a midsirach. A midsirach is where a Jewish individual would lead a person to a, a place where they would ask a question, and the question is formed in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what is the question that is then posed in our mind based upon that last verse? What is the name of the Lord? This is what Peter's going to answer next in our time together next week. But he is leading them to this point. He's given them the big picture. This is what's starting out. We're in the last days now. This new covenant has been initiated by Jesus Christ. This is the last covenant before his final return and his uh, display of uh, kingship there in uh, Jerusalem will take place, etc. And then he ends with the question, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you look just quickly in verse 22, the very first thing that he says is, this is the Lord Adonai, this is the one, his name is Jesus. Beautiful introduction to his uh, first evangelistic message. Painting the big picture... will draw people in to the overall story, the meta narrative of what's happening, and it will drop down to that specific point of contact between Peter and those who are listening and the event that's taking place there in their midst... Now there's a big picture rooted in the Old Testament. He has scriptural authority for what is taking place. They now are riveted to what he is saying and they are now willing to hear what he is about to say next. Turn with me in the Bible to Acts chapter 17. Within the book of Acts, we have two incredible uh, evangelistic sermons that were preached, one by Peter, one by Paul, To two different, completely uh, opposite audiences. In chapter 2, Peter is speaking to Jewish people who have a foundation in the Old Testament. In chapter 17, Paul speaks to individuals who have no such foundation. So, the question I had looking at Paul's address did he also bring them into a big picture before coming down to the specifics? And let's begin in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24. The God... Who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he is in need of anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath and everything. Would you say that's big picture? Absolutely. Okay. Okay this one that you claim is the unknown God, they did so because they didn't want to offend any God that they might have forgotten. So we're going to make this statue to the unknown God, and Paul, just brilliantly inspired by the Spirit, capitalizes on this opportunity. He says, okay, now it's him that I'm going to proclaim to you. And guess what? He's the creator of everything. He is the giver of all life. He is superior to all you call gods. That's what he's saying here. Big picture, big picture, big picture. Bringing them into the specific event before them. Here he does it in a Jewish fashion. By drawing their attention to a passage of the Old Testament that begins and ends with the big picture this is it this is the beginning of the church this is beginning of the last days we are currently in the last days closer now to the return of christ than ever before this is the big picture and it shall come to pass that all and everyone who calls on the name of the lord shall be saved the question they would have then is who is the lord let me give you a few things to wrap up this morning in our evangelistic endeavors, if we can introduce the big picture, there are some significant advantages in doing so. Big picture being the events between Revel- uh, Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. If we can give them a brief synopsis of the overall meta narrative, even though People are absolutely opposed to subjection to any type of meta narrative today. They want to believe that they are completely free, that there's nothing that destines their future, and so forth. They also are completely insecure because there is no meta narrative uh, guiding their lives and their individual uh, purposes. And so, therefore, when a meta narrative is introduced, they do listen to it. And so, by painting the big picture, let me give you some. Real practical um, advantages in doing so in your evangelistic endeavors. So, the first thing we're learning is that if I can introduce the big picture as I'm sharing Christ, I'm going to look to do so. Number one, painting the big picture, we wrap the event in the meta narrative of the entire Bible. We give this moment that you're sharing with them context. We are explaining that something is happening that is so much bigger than they are. And often that will draw them into even more serious consideration of that which you're about to say next. It gives them a backdrop to understand what is happening before them as you talk to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only did Jesus Christ come to save you, but he created you from the beginning for a purpose. There's the marinette. There's the meta narrative right there. There's the beginning. But one day, this same Jesus who was crucified and rose again and ascended into heaven will return to judge the earth for their sin. There's the close of the meta narrative. So, number two. By painting a bigger picture, it creates urgency that time is limited. That's exactly what Peter was doing here. He was creating an urgency in his listeners, that this was nothing to be passive about or indifferent about. It was something that should be taken to heart immediately there was still the expectation that if Israel would still have repented at this time and embraced Jesus Christ as Savior, that he would have returned at that moment to establish his kingdom on the earth. And I believe that you see that in all of the epistles that are written, this thinking that if we, you know if Israel gets saved, all Israel gets saved, then we can usher in and they can uh, Christ can reign then from Jerusalem physically, and so forth. but God knew Christ knew that this was going to be a longer endeavor, that the Gentiles would be grafted into the vine, etc, but there 's an urgency that is placed the time is. Uh, at hand you know today is the day of salvation that speaks of urgency doesn't it Uh, how about this tomorrow is promised to no man right just this week last week i should say my wife took a new customer at her salon and did her hair that night she went home had a stroke and died the next morning and it shook my wife it, you know of course it would shake anybody a little bit to the core but tomorrow's promise to no one is it you may be having an opportunity to share christ with her and, and that's what dina said you know i'm glad i took an opportunity with this lady because tomorrow she was she was dead so the pa- painting the bigger picture can often create an urgency to allow the individual to see that they cannot remain in a state of indifference forever Number three, painting a big picture ties that moment into the overall move of God. When you got saved and you received Christ, you repented of your sin, you became that new creation in Him, you had no idea how your life was going to so radically change and you didn't probably start to discover how radical that change was going to be until you started getting around all your brothers and sisters in Christ. And all of a sudden, you feel like not only do you know them, but they know you, which can be a little creepy at the beginning. But there's so much love amongst the body of Christ. And you start to see that you're part of something much bigger. I'm now part of the body of Christ, I'm now an individual in his kingdom. I'm now part of this incredible redemptive story that is taking place before us. And this is huge, this is enormous. This is incredible that before the foundations of the world, he set me apart. I don't understand that, Lord, but thank you. And then he saved me. He opened my eyes. He opened my heart. By his grace, now I have been saved. And then as I am taught the overall big picture, I see that it's so much more than just about me now. It's so much bigger. It's about him and all about him. Number Four, by painting the big picture, we will or may answer questions that they are asking in their hearts that you aren't even previous to. We see here in our text, the individuals were asking the question, what does this mean? Often when I introduce the meta narrative or the big picture story to an individual that I'm witnessing to, I often, by the Spirit's leading, answer questions that they have that I'm not even aware of. And then they'll look at me with those eyes and you know the Spirit has just done something when they look at you with those eyes like they'll be down here like this and they'll go, how'd you know? How'd you know that? I'm watching you. No, (laughs) how did you know that? Because the Spirit knew it. The Spirit wanted to ask that question. The Spirit knew that this was important. I'll never forget that night that we were out at the streets of Woodfield sharing the gospel with all of these uh, people. It was just an incredible night. We were just about to call it a day. We were just about leaving. We were walking to the car. I just felt prompted by the Spirit to go back and go one more round with a group of teenagers that I saw gathered there under the awning of Starbucks. And as I introduced myself and we started witnessing, I saw their eyes were just you know, riveted and we were we just had them and so on and so forth but this one young lady was mocking and she was walking behind them back and forth mocking and I kept going kept telling her about Jesus and I kept telling her about what he has done and why they need him and so on and so forth and they just couldn't you know get enough And yet she was still mocking. She was still mocking. She was still mocking. And I even said, I said, I bet you you've had family members and others who were Christians praying for you. And then she stopped and she started listening and she started uh, crying as I was giving the invitation. And I asked the one girl that I was speaking to if she'd like to receive Christ. And she was already there. And then her boyfriend says, this is something we all need to do. The spirit was there immensely and I started to pray with all of them they bowed their heads right there in the middle of everything one person went like this it was incredible to watch and to see and then as I finished we were giving them Bibles we were trying to get them hooked up in a local church I saw the girl who had been mocking just weeping just weeping with tears and I asked her I said, "I noticed that you were mocking but then something changed and she said you said something you said something about family members. And she said, two weeks ago, I was with my grandmother. And right before she died, as she held my hand, she prayed that I would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And if it wasn't her, that somebody else would come along. Do you ever think the Spirit had that in mind? I mean, you can't duplicate that. I mean, that's God working there. Something so much bigger but he answered a question he met a need by explaining the bigger picture and just i don't know what prompted me to say about family members i didn't know these kids at all but god did and he had me say that by painting the bigger picture it draws to that moment when they see and start to hear about the creation of the world and, and our falling from that position of perfection there in the garden and God's attempt from Genesis 3 all the way to the coming of Christ, prophesying and speaking of one that He is going to bring about that's going to return man to that rightful state before God in perfection through His sinful life and death and resurrection on the cross, It draws the big picture, draws them into that moment, and it allows them to see that this is something that they cannot refute easily or be indifferent to immediately or just reject openly without giving it further consideration. Painting the big picture in our evangelistic efforts will draw people into that moment like none other. So as we close this morning, this is only part one of Peter's Peter's incredible evangelistic speech. Be with us for the next couple weeks. You won't want to miss this. But now we've learned that if we can give them a little bit of a taste of the overall big picture, it can be incredibly useful and helpful to our overall endeavor.